Ouija Cast, Episode 2, Richard Greaves. Squeegeecast, the podcast for screen printers and garment decorators. The purpose of Squeegeecast is to help you better your products, processes, and knowledge in the garment decorating field. Please visit squeegeecast.com and share your input and opinions. You can find us on a variety of social networks, so please support Squeegeecast by liking, sharing, and following. Today, my guest is Richard Greaves. He is an author, technician, entrepreneur, consultant, and great contributor to the screen printing world. You can locate him through his website, richardgreaves.com. Hello, Richard. Hello, Phil. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, glad you were able to take the time to uh, talk to me today, and I hope our listeners enjoy it. Now, I would interrupt immediately and say that, yes, you can find me at richardgreaves.com, but if you want, it's so much faster to just call me, and at the end of the the netcast, we'll give my email and my phone number uh, because it's just a, a much better way. I have really haven't done anything with my website for years, and so it's kind of out of date, and it's not, I'm just not up to speed with that. I apologize in advance. That's fine. We'll um, put some little show notes on the website so I can uh, throw your number there. Whatever you want there, we'll put it there. For our listeners, can you just kind of describe what it is that, that you do currently? Well, I had a stroke in 2009, and that really retired me from full 110% working. I was the product manager at Ulano, and you know, one Saturday morning I got up and I didn't feel as well as I'd like, and so I took it easy. But on Sunday morning, boy, I really didn't feel good. So I went to the hospital and came back to my apartment nine months later. So wow. when I got to the hospital, they explained to me I was having a stroke. From... From my belief of what a stroke, it's a, that was kind of a long, drawn-out episode. Was, was your stroke typical, or was it a little different than... No, because mine was based on blood pressure, um, nothing really broke. But undoubtedly, in my brain, somewhere, gaskets were blown. Because when I moved from St. Louis to New York City, I didn't get a new doctor. Thus, I did not get new blood pressure medications, didn't continue with my blood pressure medications, and that's what zapped me. It was my own stupidity, and there's it's the only one word for it. I did it to myself. So I had high blood pressure when I would go donate blood. They'd say, ooh, one time they refused me because my blood pressure was high. And, you know, I felt fine. I didn't like my blood pressure medicine because it made me, it made me weaker. It slowed me down. I couldn't run up the stairs like I used to. On that Sunday, when I had the stroke, I was really dragging. In fact, dragging my leg as I dragged myself down to the street and got a taxi and took myself to the Brooklyn hospital. So I, it, it wasn't a devastating stroke. I got to the hospital soon. You know, it, it took a long time. I still don't have real good use of my left arm, and I still don't have real good use of my left leg, and I, I doubt if that will ever, ever come back. But... You know, at Long Beach, when I saw you last, twice I walked to the FedEx place, which turns out to be almost a mile. So I did two miles, walking back and forth. It just takes forever because I used to walk fast, now I walk slow. So I'm about one half the man I used to be in 2009, 
But if you listen to me now, you can tell I'm still alive. If I get tired, it's late in the day now. I wish I could be taking a nap now. I want to take a nap at the end of the day, but I'm still full of vim and vigor. But now I graduated. I'm now a grumpy old man. I used to be an angry young man. <laughs> Every time I've seen you, you've been just seemed like you're doing great. I'm glad that uh, the stroke didn't keep you down. My father recently had a stroke. It was a little disconcerting right at first. He had uh, some serious change in my father. It was very serious, and I, it scared me. And it took a while, but he sat back. He's he's 86. He drives his car around, takes care of himself, no problem. Uh, he has a little bit of a loss within uh, an arm uh, or an, and hand, mainly. It's, mm-hmm. And um, uh, pretty much like it didn't happen. But initially, it was something. It was uh, scary for me. So I know you've been in this industry quite a while. The changes that you've seen, are you flabbergasted by some of the changes? Well, I don't know if I'm flabbergasted, but I've been in, uh, in screen printing since 1979. That dates me quite a bit. Mm. Um, you know, the guys that I grew up with are all in our 60s now. And to men that are, that are lucky, enough to be t- they're lucky enough to be teenagers now, I see children now that for 10 years, they've never known a world where there hasn't been an iPhone so the kids that are 10 years old never never knew a world without an iPhone. And if you're 20 years old, you've never known a world without a computer. And so that makes me feel old because think of our grandparents. My grandparents, some of them are still alive. And, you know, they knew an era when there were no aeroplanes. So the world has changed. Now, some of I think the world has improved. And the people that are getting left behind are the people that are not moving with the times or they're fixed in one way of producing goods for their business. And part of what business is, is staying in the lead. There's only one Mark Zuckerberg. There's only one Bill Gates. There are lots of other people that are also millionaires. But there's only one guy that was there so early and had the perfect position in life. And that's a lot of that is luck. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an awful lot of money and business left up for everyone else. Whom do we look up to? We look up to Rich Hoffman, maybe president of MNR, or John Weiss of New Buffalo Shirt Factory, who's going to come back into the screen printing business after he sold his business to Gildan, and now he's, you know, he collected. I'm sure they both collected a lot of money when they when they transferred their business to other people, but they're still vital, lively people. But they've also changed with the times. Yeah, you do have to definitely change with the times. That's why the playing field was kind of leveled by technology. At, at one time, I, I don't know, I started in high school back in like 84 or something, but uh, the first guy I worked for, you know, was using vertical process cameras, Sabaline masking films, all these little things. The, the shops that did that and made uh, very interesting technical art with a lot of very interesting cutting-edge artwork pre-computer, they kind of had a corner on the market. There wasn't other people doing it, so they, they their businesses were thriving. And when the computer came along, there was a learning curve, but if you contact the proper people, work with your suppliers, there's lots of education they're going to give you, you can be a cutting-edge screen printer using proper technology in very short order, if you're creative, if you're dynamic and you're going to be pushing your business. Whereas in 1979... That's a huge curve, huge compared to what it is now. 
But that's what 35 or 40 years of the business means. Someday you'll be as old as me, and there'll be, you know, there's going to be something in the next 10 years that we just don't know what it is, and it's going to put another twist on it. I think it's great, and I do embrace technology. It seems like there was a point in time where I didn't. When I was really young, I was all into it. I had a uh, Commodore VIC-20, and I'd program a computer game and play it for a while, and when you were done, you turned it off and it was gone. If you want to play it again, you reprogram the whole thing every time. Mm. And I, I was doing that when I was a kid, and that was fun. And gosh, if I would have stuck with it, that would have been a whole different career path. There's no telling. And then for a while, I just went out and did things. You know, I was a physical, very physical world. And now I am totally back into technology. I embrace it, check out all the newest things. And, and this podcast is one of them. I, I was looking to for self-improvement stuff. I listened to videos and I found out about podcasts and kind of clicked into some podcasts, which are great. You can listen to a podcast while you're working. You can listen to a podcast when you're driving. It, I started doing that. And then I said, well, I'm a screen printer. Uh, let me see what's out in the screen printing podcast. And there's, there's some out there. Some are short-lived. Some are ongoing. But it wasn't really what I wanted, which was just to talk to great people like you and uh, have good conversations. I liken it to when I go to a screen printing show. When I go to a screen printing show, SPAI, <laughs> I go to those shows, I would just talk to people, meet people, and not necessarily industry professionals, a fellow uh, you know, ink slinger like myself. I would meet at the show and say, wow, there's other people like me in the same boat. And then, of course, you'd see that there's a lot of people doing it and there's a lot, lots of directions to go. So I would get inspired. And when I would return from a screen printing show, I'd be ready to work and do some cool stuff. You know, I'd be all energized. And that's kind of what I'm hoping with this podcast is that, you know, people just listen and realize that there's people out there, some uh, legends and some just newbies that we're all in a boat together and it can happen, it can do it, and try to keep people energized. You're a prolific author, so you've written many, many articles, and I was just going to uh, ask you to take a guess about how many articles you may have written over the years. Well, I wrote for Screen Printing Magazine. I had a column in Screen Printing Magazine for nine years called Greaves on Garments. I had known the editor, Susan Vanell for many years because she was my autotype saleswoman. And when she took over the uh, editorship of Screen Printing Magazine, we were at uh, Tech Simps, which is the technical symposium that the Screen Printing Association used to put on once a year. And I think it was Toronto. And I was speaking on Full Color Process, which was a very hot subject in the early 80s, and she was sitting with Barbara Montgomery, who was then the current editor of Impressions Magazine, and they were both sitting together, and I had lunch or something with them later on, and they both said, Richard, you've got to write for the magazine. He said, so there was, I don't know, could it have been a bidding war or whatever, but Sue offered me my own column. She's the one who titled it, Greaves on Garments. I was a little, not embarrassed, but shy or humbled about the, the Greaves part. But Greaves on Garments ran for nine years, uh, you know, 12 issues, except in the later years I missed a few. <laughs> and that's why Steve DeChilly, uh sent me that fax that said, uh, no, you're fired uh, because I was missing them. But my own battle to that is that Steve was the only person at Screen Printing Magazine that insisted that I sign a contract for eight years. It had been good enough for, for Sue Bennell, but when she left the magazine and and retired from the magazine, and, and Steve DeChilly was now the editor, he insisted that I have a contract, and at part of the contract, it just said, if I don't do a column, they have the right to reprint one of my old ones. So I showed him, I said, fine, rerun one of my old ones, because it was there, it was an opportunity. 
Well, I don't think Steve liked that very much. In fact, we joked about it at the show just the other day because he introduced me to one of his new employees because he's the, the you know, a big supervisor of so many of the magazines at ST Media in Cincinnati. And I said, yes, Steve's the one who fired me 25 years ago. And he goes, no. Like, ooh, ooh. So <laughs> he shouldn't be embarrassed because he fired me because I was almost always a little late. So I was not as productive as I should be. But Boom! I was fired for one week, and Mark Buchanan over at Printware Magazine, he called and said, ooh, we want you to be editor, we want you to be the technical editor of Printware Magazine. So I wrote for another five years uh, until 2000, the year 2000, um, when I stopped writing because I started to work for Lawson Screen Products, and they weren't so interested in me writing a regular column. Now, uh, when I worked for Stretch Device, when I worked for Don Newman, he didn't seem so interested in me writing a column either. So to me, it was something on the side. For a while, I was writing for four different publications because I wrote for Images Magazine in the United Kingdom. I worked for Kathy Hobson there. I'd, I'd been to England several times, and um, there were, she had used to she used to work at Screen Process Magazine and had broken off. And I didn't know about Images, but. I took some took some advice from some people that I knew in England, and they said, no, go with Kathy. She's the one to do. Um, I wrote for Chinese Magazine, which I don't even remember who it was or what it was. But they would take my older magazines, and I would send articles to Peter Yule. And I, I gave my friends that were associated with the European magazines, you know, if you want a column, you've just got to translate it. Send me a copy. So I've got issues of magazines in Israeli, in Spanish, in Chinese. I can't read the Chinese or any of those, but I recognize my picture. It must be me. <laughs> it must be you. What does it feel like to be on top of your game like that? Uh, I mean, I know that I've, I've had waves of where I've been right on point and people asking me all kinds of things. For a time, I was saying arrogant things like, uh, I'm the best screen printer I know. And I was young and, and really good at this stuff. And I just saw through it. So many people were just having problems, problems, problems. And while I didn't attack it as technically as many of the experts, some people just see it. There are some of the best musicians in the world don't know anything about music. So I was uh, doing really good things and enjoying it. And I'd see through stuff and feeling really good. However, the more you get out there, you realize, hey, there's lots of good people. There are a lot of good screen printers in this country, in this world. It's fantastic what some of the work people do. In, in your case, because you've traveled and consulted and been around, you know where you stand. Even if you keep a huge sense of humility, Richard, you are a famous screen printer. And you know that that is based on merits. It's based on a lot of hard work. It's also got to feel somewhat good to be a screen printing rock star. What do you think about that? When I first got the column in Screen Printing Magazine, I wanted to use it as my bully pulpit. And because I was in a shop every single day running my own business, I had thousands of examples of things to write about. And that it was easy because whatever I'd worked on that day or, you know, you travel for an entire month doing consulting, I've got a ton of things because... I could write a column every single day about what happened today in the shop. That's what my friends at the Ink Kitchen are doing now. Tom Davenport and Rick Roth, their Ink Kitchen thing. Uh, I think mine things are a little more technical than what the, the Ink Kitchen guys did, but it was actually pretty easy. But when I started to write the column, I wanted to be able to use a bully pulpit and yell at the manufacturers for what I didn't like. I'm writing for Screen Printing Magazine now. 
And I did love the fact that that did give me the badge. Because when I went anywhere, it said, you know, I write a column in Screen Printing Magazine, you know. So it, it was my pride, and it's certainly my picture in the magazine every month, because screen printing used to be the magazine print wear and impressions were at a different basis. And they didn't go worldwide, because nothing is greater than going to France, going to a screen shop, it's just like all the others, and there's a stack of unopened magazines, and there's a screen printing magazine. I crack it open to page 32 spread it out so that my picture can come out. And, of course, what a calling card that was. All right. All right. So now for the humble stuff. Tomasz Freshka would read my article. Tomasz Freshka was the publisher of Screen Printing Magazine. He eventually married Susan Vanell, and they, when they retired, they moved off to Florida. So they were the one-two punch. But Tomasz, he, writes, he, he calls me on the phone. He says, Richard, I can't publish this. I said, what do you mean it's a column? It's a bylined column. He says, no, here. And I don't really remember exactly what he said, but he banged me on the forehead a little bit. He said, you can't talk this way in this magazine. We are the Bible of the industry. And he took that extremely seriously. So what I learned from Tomasz Freshko was that if you're talking about the facts, you can talk about the facts and eliminate all the personalities, and you have to give examples and I, again, now I'm going to try and give you an example of what it actually meant. You can't just say, this is what you should do, or this is what I do. I've always relied on science. And I can almost describe anything, the basic science terminology of things that people understand in their kitchen, or their backyard, or their cars. Because the science of screen printing is just not that complicated. But when you use the long, specific words, let's take a word that I've been de debating over the last month, and that's the word wetting. And that wetting really has to do with adhesion. So when an ink wets the substrate, and there, the word substrate, it's an expensive word for what you're printing on. So until you begin to use the word substrate, because you read a book, it's confusing to the average printer. And I know that Tomasz Freshka did all the formulas. My friend Joe Clark, he did the, the, not the pie in the sky, but he did the dreamy stuff, the advanced stuff that was always bleeding edge. Mark Coudre was always very down to earth, but in high science. And I think I had more of the practical level spoken with as simple a terms as I could imagine. They get people like um, Andy McDougall, who writes for Screen Printing Magazine now, and they're more folksy than I am. And I look at my old stuff that I wrote in the 1980s, and they, they're cute. So I made little jokes and stuff about, you know, I had a refrigerator in the office, and, and uh, I used to drink a ton of Mountain Dew every day. And I don't know, that's how they sound cute to me, but I'm 62 years old now, so uh, that cute. Now I rely more on the intellectual sarcasm. But I think it was Tomasz Freshka who, who guided me into how to write and not piss people off. <laughs> so I think that's a great sense of diplomacy. And the other thing is that when someone comes to you for help, if they're calling me on the phone, and I encourage people to call me on the phone, I'll give anybody 10 minutes. I answer the phone, even if I don't recognize your number, because I've been used to answering the phone for, you know, answering questions over the phone, especially when I worked at Lawson and when I worked at Ulano. So... If you're calling for help, you actually need help. And you don't need an expert talking down to you. I'm trying to remember where I heard this. 
prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. So for salesmen, I can now stand on my bully pulpit and make fun of them because all my friends are salesmen. Everyone's a salesman. But salesmen, you just come in, this is what you should use without knowing at all what you should use or what is your shop like. Now, when I do a consulting job, I'm going on, a, you know, I, I've gone on so many consulting jobs. The first thing I tell every consulting client is, you know, there's so much we can do over the telephone. There's so much we can do over Skype. I do a weekly consulting gig with a guy in Slovenia, Boris Bauman. And he calls me every morning at 7 a.m. Friday mornings. I spend an hour with him, and he just wants to talk to somebody else, and he knows it. He does it. I do that for fun. So I, I don't mind getting up that little bit of extra so that I'm ready at 7 o'clock to talk to him. We, I don't have to dress at all. I do it in my pajamas if I want to. But I'm talking about screen printing, and it's fun to talk with other people. The idea is is that that people recognize you, and if they've got the guts to step up and ask you a question, could you explain how ink cures? Could you explain why you can't, um, or why underexposure means that I now can't recycle my mesh by reclaiming the, the, the mesh with stencil remover? And salespeople, my old friends at Yolano, don't really explain it that well. They just say, here's what you should do, follow the rules, but it just takes a few minutes longer to explain why. Now, on the other hand, I'll get people on the forums and say, you know, I don't want a science class, can't you just tell me what it is? Now, these people who just want an aspirin, these people are dangerous. They just want me to tell them what it is they should do. The problem is that if I don't understand all the other drugs they're taking and I prescribe something, it's now malpractice because I don't really understand what they're really doing. And I can tell, as an expert, mostly because I've been answering questions for 35 years, I can tell probably what your problem is from the question that you ask. And then there's two follow-up questions, and then I can probably tell you exactly what, you, what I think you should do in easy science terms. And almost always, it's not spend more money because that's a kind of a stupid, lame answer. Buy more gear. Well, that's also the sales generated, how they make their money. A lot of the larger professional companies that uh, sell uh, screen printing supplies, their technical service people are spot on. They are really good. They put a lot of effort into getting the right people out there. And they're, they're, the technical salespeople... Some of them are overworked and hard to get a hold of. However, you, you'll have your salesman calling on you, and, and then you'll talk to him, and he'll say, well, let me get my technical guy, because he really doesn't know the answer. He's there to you know, ensure there's no problems and stuff, but when it comes down to the direct questions about some of his products, a lot of times he refers to the technical experts, and they, they really are. Those companies um, do good research. They find the right people. They, they are often very good help. And it's uh, sometimes the general screen printer, you're, you're spending money with these people. And you may think, well, I'm a small shop. I, I, I don't spend that much money with one of these large corporations. You do because it's just like political. Every vote counts. The worst and best advertising is word of mouth. They can't have some guy out there going, you know, I asked them how to code the screen and they won't let me know. They will let you know. These people could be very busy However, they will often get back to you. And as a as owner of a small company, 
call them, ask them. They're your resource. You pay for it. You and all your other constituents out there printing shirts, you pay for that service, those services, and it's uh, there to use. I remember the first time I met you was in uh, at, in Pensacola, Florida. Um, I was working for a company called the Beach Shirt Company, and the owner was Carol Fairchild. She had kind of a niche business because she was uh, directly marketing to the uh, graduating pilots of the Naval Academy. She came from an art background and not so technical. At some point, she decided you were, this was um, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you were pretty much top on your game, and uh, she asked you to come down. And there's uh, two little things I want to say about that. One was, it was a small company. She didn't have a lot of money. And I think she approached you like the normal thing of someone to, to travel to consult expenses, you know, food, lodging, and things like that. And since she didn't have much money going on, I think she asked, hey, uh, you can sleep on my couch or something. And uh, that was no problem for you. So that, that you in my head, that gave you some brownie points. that you. I will interrupt there. I didn't sleep on the couch. I had a full private room. You know, I mean, I had a guest room, but uh, I had a lovely room. I'll talk about that in a minute, but go ahead. Okay, so it wasn't the couch, but it was you were willing to uh, work with her budget and living accommodations. And then the other thing is, um, as things went on, you were talked about roller frames. I'd been stretching them quite a bit. I think you had a goal of a four-minute roller frame. Those are the old, old skinny, skinny mm-hmm. ones. And so I never really tied myself, but I think before you left, I was at four <laughs> okay. minutes because I was, you know, like I said, that arrogant screen printer. So, and then at one point jokingly said so uh i i should uh hook up with you and go back to wherever you were hailing from at that time and be your assistant consultant and you just without skipping a beat doing whatever you're doing didn't even really look at me said yeah sure and of course yeah you you called my bluff and freaked me out because i wasn't ready to change anything about my life at that point in time but um so i i don't spend much time wondering about what ifs because i think that's an extremely bad habit for humans to do but that is, I wonder what, what if, because I'm really into the craft, and had I gone a different route, a different level, so many years ago, things could have been very different. Hmm. Well, I don't remember much. I do remember Carol Fairchild fondly, but I have to say, I do not remember any details. I'm sure that I have notes that I could go back and look things up, but alas, I don't have a lasting memory of the work that we did together. What I do remember, absolutely, is that staying in Carol's extra bedroom, she had books in there, and I saw on the shelf a copy of uh, William Onkin's book, The One-Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. And I loved the One-Minute Manager books and absorbed them in the early 80s, but the monkey book... I, it was kind of stupid to add these monkeys on the thing, and I'd, I'd never invested the probably 8 to $10 that it cost for one of those books. And But here it was for free, and so in that evening, you know, after dinner, and so I get to retire to my room and whatever, I read The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey, and that book changed my life just in the way of managing people. I love that book. I love William Unkin. The audio tapes of William Unkin... Spencer Johnson and Ken Blanchard are the people that wrote The One-Minute Manager. And it's the One-Minute Manager guys, one of them did audio recordings. And I consider The One-Minute Manager, William Unkin, to be one of the funniest seminars I have ever listened to. As funny as any comedian, yet with the sting of acid truth. Because he sums up management problems in a heartbeat. William Unkin's article 
uh, Who's Got the Monkey, is the most requested article of all the articles ever written in the Harvard Business Review. I just posted on Twitter probably about a year and a half ago when they reprinted it and sort of had a, you know, what's happened since then? Mr. Onkin's been dead for many, many, many years now, but but um, it just revitalized it. And on the netcast that I do with Scott Fresner, I've mentioned this several times, and I, I just consider this to be a really important book for business owners. And it's 80 pages, but I love the audio tape. That'll definitely be in our show notes, and you'll find it on the website. I'm going to have to read that. Got me jazzed to read that. So what, what do you think about the, this uh, direct-to-garment printing? It's not screen printing, but it's all over the place. It's kind of taken over, taken over a lot of the uh, small-run aspects. Um, I remember when it first hit the market, and I saw it all coming. I was like, well, that's a really great, cool idea. Too bad it doesn't work yet. But this is now it's starting to work. Do you work oh, with sure. those people at all, or...? It depends on how you look at the business. If you're only a screen printer, and I say that casually, if you're only a screen printer, if, if you're a screen printer and you're pulling a squeegee every day, direct-to-garment threatens your livelihood. But if you're an owner, if you're Carol Fairchild, you're a decorator of Navy uniforms, do the Navy care how the image got on the, on the shirt? Do they care if it's a decal or it's a... Uh, if it's a transfer, or if it's direct printed, or if it's direct printed with Newman roller frames, or the worst wooden screens you've ever seen in your life. Capillary film, direct emulsion, um, the new nylon, uh, or the new silicone ink, or the world's oldest plastisol formula. That doesn't really matter. That's business. So if you're a garment decorator, you need to be thinking about when you're going to make the most money. Now, if you're trying to print things that are a thousand units long, then a direct-to-garment is not really going to be your place. But if you have a storefront, if you have customers that casually come by, so so many of the factories that I've run or, or been in are in buildings out in the country. Nobody knows. There's no sidewalks there. But I've been with lots of screen printers. Uh, the one that I think of immediately is was in Muskegon, Michigan. And Joey Girardin was on a street, and he put a yellow tent in front of this building. And it was, you know, Discount T-shirts, and there were T-shirts hanging all the time, winter or summer, and people, everybody knew the place with the yellow tent, and they went there to get extra T-shirts or misprints or whatever Joey was actually selling. But it's the idea that people walking in off the street, if you could say, you know, for $10, I can take a photograph, and 10 minutes later, you're walking out with that on a shirt. Maybe $10 is too cheap, but if you can get a shirt in the 2 or $3 range, and you can transfer it, Transfer is is the is a distracting word. If you can put it, if you can imprint it on a blank T-shirt for twelve dollars, or if you do a lot of them, you can do them for ten bucks a piece, and they can leave in one hour. That's what people want. I've been to so many contract printing places where I look. And to me, in the eighties, contract printing was, yeah, we do thirty, forty, fifty thousand units for the Charmin group. Have you ever seen a Charmin T-shirt? I know that Bill Webb in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he literally almost had a printing press doing Charmin around the year, the entire year. Charmin? I've never seen a Charmin shirt or whatever it was that he was printing. So that's what contract printing meant to me, and you had to be a good printer because it was cutthroat. But when somebody comes in and wants one, two pictures of grandma, 25 bucks is not a problem, especially 
when they can leave in 10 minutes. And it's perfect full color process, perfect print. And now I, I actually, I'm really excited about it. I'm glad that um, they've uh, come a long way. I remember when it first came, it was like, you know, spotty. Obviously, that is the answer for your two-run shirt. Writing's on the wall on that one. So I'm so glad that things are really getting dialed in, and there's a lot of people using those uh, that technology. Some people specializing in online t-shirt houses that just focus on that business. And uh, Well, the Zazzles of the world, the um, you know, there are so many companies that have 20 or 30 of these direct-to-garment machines or more. Don't take that as a specific thing, but just... Lots and lots and lots of them. There was a company that, that I saw in Atlantic City a year or two years ago that I talked about on the Atlantic cast I did with Scott Fresker, Dream Something or Other in California, where they've got 10 of the most expensive cornets. And they're, doing, they're busy almost 24 hours a day. They've got sales that are turning out lots of little designs. It's just a different market than traditional screen printing. Screen printing is not going away. This is a new market for a different kind of a print. And the internet, internet sales, people being able to design their own shirt, they're not designing the Jimmy Buffett cheeseburger in paradise shirt that made me a rock star in the early 1980s. That was a shirt that everybody was desperate to have. We were printing the trade shows in the advance booth. But that's a long time ago. A long time. Nobody even wants a white shirt anymore. They want everything on black. <laughs> Um, since, since we have a lot of listeners and, and they're all trying to have a more successful business and most of the time people want to be happy and healthy, is there any uh, blanket advice how to become uh, a little more successful and, uh, and having a more enjoyable business? Well, you need a good balance. Um, I'm a real good screen printer. I'm probably not the best screen printer, but I'm a real good screen printer. But without a salesperson the balance of a salesperson without someone that can actually run the business part. So there's now that's three parts of the business. So in the, one of the best companies that I ever worked with was the, the partnership I had with, with Steve Morris and his family as the sales end of the business. Jeffrey Gittimer as the true salesman. I said the wrong thing. Steve Morris and his family were, yes, they're oriented in sales, but they were really the business people. Jeffrey Gittimer is the lead salesman. Jeffrey Gittimer, Gittimer.com, the best salesman I've ever, ever known. And myself is the printer. I never wanted to leave the building. Why should I have to leave the building? And Jeffrey deluged me in more printing work than I could than I, uh, ever handle. So that's terrific. And Mr. Morris really controlled the business with an iron hand. So we had a real good partnership. It didn't last because Head Sportswear decided to default on a half a million dollar contract and there was just no getting out of it. They crushed the business. You know, we had one sale for half a million dollars that it was too big for us to handle and they pulled the plug on us and it pulled the plug on us. Steve Morris and his family decided to quit. I still love him to death, but he and his family did pull the plug on the best screen printing shop that I'd, I'd ever run. So what was my point in that? The balance. So... If you're strictly a screen printer, you don't know how to run, or if you don't have sales, there are lots of salespeople that don't like running a business. So I think you can you could probably twist that discussion ten different ways, but it's a good balance. And if you're missing pieces of the pie, you're not a complete whole. So some people can do it all on their own, 
But some people need help. And if they don't have the money, they can't hire a good accountant. They don't have a good banker. They don't have a good insurance agent. They don't have good uh, reputations with the shipping people or purchasing of goods. These are all things that happen outside the business. And then if you don't know how to do art, oh, my goodness, you're in such big trouble. If you're, you're crippled or you're handicapped because the art person really controls everything because if Billy leaves, we're really screwed because <laughs> we can't do anything if he quits on us. So he could be a big jerk, but if he's the only guy that knows how to get anything out of Corel Draw, we're all in trouble. So balance. And I, I am so enamored with people that start in their garage and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you need to have some sort of a business background, but you also need to have some sort of a screen printing or an art background also. You can learn it all, but it helps if you've got people that you can work with, a good team. Well said, because a lot of people try to do it all. Because you can never do all things at a, at a high enough level to be really, really successful at it, then you're always frustrated at your shortcomings. I mean, that's, there's no doubt. One of the first traits you should have is working well with others <laughs> so that you can develop these relationships and, and have other people help you. I know a lot of people that that's one of their biggest shortcomings. They, they have trouble working with others and allowing them to do that. And one of the biggest things in my advice on that is to realize, going and walking into it, that they probably will not do it like you oh, would. Yeah, right. And that that's okay. Or it can be okay. You need to let people do what they do, and uh, you can be surprised by the results. I think it is someone who said that successful people are people who will do what other people won't do. I'm simplifying that. I'm mangling that quote up. But when you think, I, I mentioned Bill Gates. I mentioned uh, uh, Zuckerberg. Um, think of any successful person. They were willing to do something that you aren't willing to do. And usually it's working hard, but gosh, they got to go to a better school, or their dad had a computer when they were a kid or, you know, they had the unfair advantage. And then there's luck. That is the unforeseen advantage, luck. Luck, being at the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. ready to go. Doing things that other people don't want to do. A lot of times when I get, uh, say, a crew training, say I'm training a new printer, in the beginning, they're doing everything for me. I mean, they're going to get the ink. They're going to bring me the squeegees. They're going to... Um, you know, do all the cleanup work and stuff, and I'm going to be the guy installing things in the machine and, and lining the screens up because they're not there yet. At some point, there will be a turn, a, a transfer of that to where when, when they're ready, I can speed the whole process up by doing their job. You're the pressman. You're doing all this great stuff, you know, and I tell you what, you will not want for anything. If you're ready for that squeegee, it will be in your hand. When you're ready for the ink, this is really what I wanted them to be right. doing all the whole time. I can actually get more production being the, the low guy on the totem pole. You probably know this to be true in a lot of aspects, too. Being the lowest guy on the totem pole that is really excellent is almost better than the expert doing all the little technical things, you know, lining things up. I can push someone, and you're actually pushing them along, making them. They don't have time to go. A lot of pressmen, when they're taking too long to set up a job, it's because they're wandering over there getting something and wandering over there getting something. As a manager, I mean, this is in a small shop. As a manager doing that stuff, I can prevent them from ever leaving, and that stuff gets set up so quick, and they think they did it. 
and really, I, I put all that I put all that fuel in their engine there. So it's all the work before the job starts, and all the work after the job finishes is the success in any business. And that, of course, comes from my one of my favorite restaurant quotes. So it's it's from Alan Ducasse that I stole that quote from. So would you say all problems are pre-press? I, I have written that in the past. All problems are pre-press, but also that as a manager, it's your job to train people and to create the system. The job should be on rails. So yes, you need to train the printer, but you also need to train the ink person if you have one, or yep. the screen maker if you have one, or the person laying out the shirts and making sure that everything is prepared so when the printer says, okay, what's my next job? They turn around and there's the next job, and there's the next job, and there's the next job. That's much more critical than who's printing. Because otherwise, the printer will be wandering around. He's got an opportunity to talk to Judy in the art room because he likes her. Where's Billy? Oh, he's talking to Judy again, or he's smoking. Well, we, you know, we don't have 20-minute breaks here. That 20-minute break is so hard to recover from. We got breaks at 10.15 and 3.15. And then... You send a couple of burly other printers to go drag Billy back from the dumpster where he's smoking and put him back in the ski boots that are right in front of his position where he's he's supposed to be loading the press and get back to work. Get back to work, you dogs! <laughs> now, you, you cannot get very far beating the kids like mules. It needs to be a nice place to work. I make jokes like that, but... Making sure that you've got a nice place to work is critical. Nice bathrooms um, and things laid out and enough people. But also, if everything is going smoothly, then you can get rid of the goof-offs because nobody's going to want you to be screwing up my situation. I look bad because, you know, where's my stuff? Who took my stuff? Or when Richard comes around and says, what is this ink on the machine? I want everybody to be scared to death. If, they, if, I, if I reach across the machine to do something and I get ink on my shirt, I want everybody to be looking at their shoes quivering because they know they're going to get it. That's a good way. And I, I love clean machinery. I just absolutely love it. Work clean. Work clean. Work clean. Big signs. These are big signs. Uh, what's next uh, is a big sign. Just a simple thing. What's next? Never run out. One of my big signs. These are things that have all been in my old columns. And my, my friend Rick Davis says, Richard, you didn't really have a sign that said, you know, anybody uh, causing a disturbance will be asked to leave. So I sent him a photograph. Of course they have a sign like that. What's next? <laughs> What's next? Never run out. That's, those are our, that's very important things, yes. Actually, um, I would like to do, do some more interviews and about specific tasks. One of my goals was not to turn this into a ask and tell and because i did listen to some podcasts and they were going on about you know how to pull a scoop coder across the screen and i I, it just didn't entice me enough to want to listen to it there's probably people that needed to listen to that maybe because i didn't feel i did i I couldn't give the attention but i don't want this to be a super direct how-to maybe in a more general guidelines about shop setup or pre-press flow or something kind of this big that we can have a good conversation on that i might like to do that again with Having said that, we are getting to the end of this one, this episode. I look forward to the next time we might be able to speak. If you have any great words for my huge listening base that is just fledgling right now, uh, to have at it. Um, 
now I'm going to say an um. Gee, you, you caught me off guard there. Uh, some great, solid uh, advice. Um, if you need help, be brave. Okay. Call. I'm offering myself that, you know, my phone number is area code 646-807-8580. We'll have that in the show notes. My email address is rgreaves, that's R-G-R-E-A-V as in Victor, E-S, at gmail.com. And so, be brave, call me up, I'll give anybody 10 minutes. Now, if I like what you're saying, or there needs to be more, or I think you're listening. Now, for this, I'm not going to charge you anything. Don't worry about that, and I have no real desire to... Hook you in. It is not bait. It is not trap. I'm interested in making friends and doing that stuff. Um, there's all sorts of things that we could do with Skype and, you know, just with the phone. Or certainly, if there's something that you'd like to read, I am the librarian. I have more things than you can possibly imagine that you can read. Now, a lot of people don't like that. They just want me to tell them they want a live show. I can do that too. And yes, if you want a live show, that's what's going to cost you money. But if you want something to read. I would love to point you in the right direction, and I have it all. Boom, a PDF can be speeding your way or something to download because I have almost every screen printing magazine ever printed and I'm scanning almost all of them, so I have them at the tip of my fingertips. More articles than you can wow. imagine. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Be humble. I will call. So next time we'll have to talk about something gritty and dirty. Thank you, Richard, and good day. <laughs>